It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my trusty co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. Anti-trusty, anti-trusty co-host. Anti-trusty, as will be appropriate for this episode when we talk to the FTC. And we also have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. By the way, those of you who want to support a progressive online bookstore and get progressive books, a large assortment are available at counterpunch.org, including quite a few of our books, counterpunch.org. We have a great show today. First, a little history. In the summer of 1968, seven graduate students came to Washington, D.C. to work on a project under the direction of a young firebrand consumer advocate named Ralph Nader. They were eventually dubbed by Washington Post reporter William Greider as the Nader's Raiders, a label Ralph originally did not like because it suggested a cult of personality instead of a movement. Although he later came to accept and appreciate the publicity provided by the branding, those original seven Raiders investigated the Federal Trade Commission, the government agency responsible for protecting people from unfair business practices, and their report led to significant reforms at the agency. 55 years later, we come back to the FTC and welcome Samuel Levine, who has the Bureau of Consumer Protection. We're going to find out the state of the FTC today. Have those reforms instituted in the Nixon administration held? Does the agency have enough lawyers and a big enough budget to truly protect consumers in this complicated fine print contract digital age? After that, we'll welcome back Dr. Michael Carome, the director of Public Citizens Health Research Group. The health research group promotes research-based system-wide changes in healthcare policy and drug safety. We'll speak to Dr. Carome in particular about their recent work on FDA oversight of medical devices. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mulkyber. But first, let's go back to where the modern consumer movement began. David? Samuel Levine serves as director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Before assuming this role, he served as an attorney advisor to Commissioner Rohit Chopra and as a staff attorney in the Midwest Regional Office. Prior to joining the FTC, Mr. Levine worked for the Illinois Attorney General, where he prosecuted predatory for-profit colleges and participated in rulemaking and other policy initiatives to promote affordability and accountability in higher education. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Samuel Levine. It's an honor to be here. Welcome indeed, Samuel. It also needs to be said that He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, where he spearheaded student-led efforts to challenge illegal foreclosures. That alone made him a standout student among the corporate culture at Harvard Law School, which I also was exposed to a few years earlier. The Federal Trade Commission was our first so-called Nader Raider reports, and we put it out around 1970. Got a lot of press. It was critical of the lax enforcement and lack of imagination by the FTC chair at the time. And it got so much publicity that Richard Nixon asked the American Bar Association to review the report and make their recommendations. And lo and behold, they were favorably disposed to the report, made recommendations for strengthening the commission, and many of them were implemented, including new leadership. So with that as a background, 
you're part of a Federal Trade Commission mission. Part of it is antitrust going up against monopolistic practices, but you're in charge of the Bureau of Consumer Protection, and this covers a $25 trillion economy. So tell our listeners what the size of the budget is and how many lawyers you have, both in your bureau and total number of lawyers at the commission, because I want to make a comparative point with corporate law firms. Yeah, certainly. So the FTC in total has about 1,380 people. The Bureau of Consumer Protection has about 450. Not all of them are lawyers. Our agency's budget is about $430 million. Our Consumer Protection Bureau's budget is well under $200 million. And it's worth noting, not only comparing our budget to that of corporate firms, but we are actually a smaller agency than we were in the 1980s. And there are reasons for that. I think it's very unfortunate. Has the FTC, since Joe Biden became president, asked the Congress for expanding its budget? Yes, we recently asked for a significant increase. I believe it was of $160 million. And President Biden has been very supportive. We got a significant increase in the last budget as well. So we are expanding, but we're still not where we need to be relative to the size of our economy. What would you like the budget to be? Well, the request we sought, I believe, was $160 million. I think that would go a long way to allowing us to take on the problems of the modern economy. But the challenges are growing ever greater. We're going up against some of the largest companies in the world, some of the best and biggest law firms in the world. Litigation is becoming increasingly expensive, as you know, with the cost of experts and others. Many companies are more inclined to take us to court, which we're prepared for, but which costs money. So I don't want to sort of put a ceiling on on our resource needs, but our budget request that we recently released lays out why we think with the budget increase, we could do a lot more to protect the American public. Well, listeners should know that in the top 10 corporate law firms, any one of the top 10 have more lawyers than the entire number of lawyers, I guess 750 lawyers working at the Federal Trade Commission. And by a lot, the firm of Baker and McKenzie, for example, which is based in Chicago, but has offices everywhere, has 1,518 lawyers who are partners and 2,865 lawyers who are associates. I'll just compare that with the FTC. The reason why that's important is that the corporate law firms who represent corporations before the Federal Trade Commission know that they can overburden and overdelay and use wars of attrition against FTC lawyers, forcing them into settlements that may be premature. Now, you did once recently fine Facebook $5 billion for serial violation of user privacies. Two questions. Have they paid the money? Because we've had in the past, we've stumbled on situations where Justice Department fines and others are not paid on time. And the second is, does any of this go back into expanding the budget? So those are both great questions. My understanding is that Facebook did pay the $5 billion fine once the order was entered, which was in 2020. In terms of whether civil penalties go back to funding our work, the answer is no. Civil penalties we collect from companies go to the U.S. Treasury. Often we'll collect redress for consumers. That goes to consumers. Nothing we do funds our work on the consumer protection side. 
Are you hamstrung by the lack of criminal prosecution powers? You, you have to refer your cases still to the Justice Department to decide whether they're going to file a civil suit or a criminal suit. Could you elaborate that for our listeners? Sure. So you're right that we don't have any criminal authorities. And I think you're right in what you were suggesting, which is that many of the defendants we sue ought to be prosecuted criminally. So we have very close relationships with prosecutors' offices across the country. We regularly refer cases for criminal prosecution. And we actually have a unit in my bureau, criminal liaison unit, with that particular mission of making sure that when criminal prosecution may be appropriate, that we're providing prosecutors with what they need. The Justice Department has been known to be recalcitrant when regulatory agencies refer cases for possible criminal prosecution. And it happens under both Republican and Democrat administrations. What do you see now in the Justice Department? We've been pleased with the, our, our partnership with the Justice Department and the number of prosecutions we've seen. I've personally been involved in civil actions that the FTC has brought that the Justice Department follows up and brings criminal charges. And we make sure to get the word out about that. So I've been very pleased with the partnership. I'm sure if you ask DOJ leadership, they would say they also need more resources, but we feel we have a good partnership with them. Yeah, squishing the federal cop on the corporate crime beat is a prime priority of corporate lobbyists in Congress. They make sure that there aren't enough cops to deal with it. A good example is that the reliable estimates that there's $360 billion with a B of computerized billing fraud just in the healthcare industry. That's one-tenth of the $3.6 trillion the country spends on healthcare. And there's a minuscule number of investigators and attorneys in the Department of Health and Human Services. They probably recover a couple billion dollars out of that. $60 billion is ripped off of Medicare alone by these charlatans. So that's one of my favorite examples about the lack of symmetry between the range of the crimes and the number of law enforcement people there are to go after them. We're talking with Samuel Levine, who is the director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Federal Trade Commission. I want to raise two questions here. One is that when the revered Michael Perchuk, who was chairman of the Federal Trade Commission under Jimmy Carter, wanted to go after the insurance companies, the insurance companies sent their brigades up to Capitol Hill and prohibited him from doing it. They basically said, unless you get the okay of either the House or Senate jurisdictional committee over the insurance companies, you cannot even investigate. You cannot even study the insurance industry. What's the situation now? So it's pretty similar. I am familiar with some of those battles. I actually have Michael Perchick's book on, on my desk here, Revolt Against Regulation. You know, the reality, Ralph, is that you are correct. Insurance companies remain outside the FTC's jurisdiction under the McCarran-Ferguson Act. But the truth is precisely for the reasons we were talking about earlier, are, are constraints on our resources, constraints on our authorities. You know, my general view is my first ask to Congress would be more resources and more authorities to take on where we do have jurisdiction. But it's certainly true that insurance remains a pain point for many consumers and remains outside the FTC's jurisdiction, at least on the consumer protection side. The other question is an internal one, which is, I have written to FTC commissioners serious letters in recent years and gotten no response, no acknowledgement. So I finally got hold of an FTC commissioner 
who is now head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and I guess was your boss when you were yes. working there. And he let me in on something I never would have dreamed. He said, Ralph, you know why your letters were never answered? I said, why? He said, because the staff intercepts them before they reach the office of the commissioners. And they decide whether the commissioners are going to receive the letters. What's the situation now? Well, many groups will send letters directly to commissioners to make sure it gets in front of commissioners. But I will say that letters that come in to our staff, I do make sure that commissioners are aware of them. And one of the things our agency leadership has done under Chair Lena Khan is try to make it much easier for the public to come to the FTC with their problem. Two things, examples I point to. We are now holding regular open commission meetings where members of the public are invited, they're virtual, to address commissioners directly. You're welcome to attend, Ralph, as is everyone else listening to this podcast. And there's also now a process where you can petition the FTC to issue a rule or to initiate a rulemaking, and the agency's required to respond. So we really are trying to democratize our work and make sure we're hearing from not just DC lobbyists, but also ordinary people and hearing about what they want the FTC to be working on. Just to clarify, if somebody wrote a personal letter to Chairman Khan or Chairwoman Khan, would it get to her office or would it be intercepted the way we were informed has been the case in prior years? It would certainly get to her office. Now, if you send a letter to someone else in the agency, it's kind of up to them you know, where the letter is going to go. But as a general matter, I'm in a place in the organization where letters that go to career staff and letters that go to commissioners... I see them all. So letters certainly are getting circulated. Now, that doesn't mean we always respond, but we certainly read them and take them seriously. And now with the new procedures we put in place, people have a chance to talk to commissioners directly on a pretty regular basis. Let me share another complaint I had. I perused the Hammaker Schlemmer catalog for their products, and I was impressed by how specific their claims are. Like in one of their products, they say it gets rid of 99% of bacteria and viruses. Really? In the middle of COVID-19? Doubtful. So I sent some of these examples in a letter to the Bureau of Consumer Protection. This was about two and a half, three years ago. And I got a form letter back saying, thank you for your letter, but we don't deal with private disputes. So I told them, I said, this is not a private dispute. This is a a broad-based complaint about a company that has been unwilling to back up its claims. There was a time in FTC history where the commission required companies that made specific complaints, like General Motors would say, buy our 1980 Camaro. It has 82 new improvements. And the FTC said, really? Well, that's fine. You better document all 82. So I got this letter back, which was obviously non-responsive. It was not a private complaint. And then it went into a dark void. And I never heard anything about whether they're going to look into Hammaker Schlemmer. How do you deal with something like that? Yeah, so, you know, that was before I was in this role. What I will say generally is that I have made very clear, and this commission has made very clear, the type of claims you're describing, objective product claims, need to be backed up. In fact, just last week, we revived an older authority, a penalty offense authority that we got in the 1970s, thanks, I think, to your advocacy, to send what we are calling notice of penalty offenses. They used to be called synopses to about 700 companies 
reminding them that they need to back up their product claims. There needs to be substantiation and making clear to them that if they fail to do so, they can face civil penalties. You're right that we cannot go after every company in the marketplace. So part of our strategy right now is deterrence. We want companies to know that if they do make false or unsubstantiated claims, they can have to pay a very heavy price. And that's why we're reviving these older authorities to try to make sure companies understand that. Here's one, 50 billion robocalls. Why can't anything be done about these bogus phone calls? There's been some law enforcement, but largely it just keeps going up. Yeah, it's a huge problem. It's not just an annoyance. For a lot of lower income people, older people can't afford to not pick up the phone. So they pick up the phone and they often get scammed. A big problem here is that a lot of the telemarketers, the scammers, are overseas. So one of the things we're doing right now, in addition to working very closely with the FCC, is we're targeting the U.S.-based operations, the VoIP providers, voice over internet protocols, that are essentially the intermediaries between the overseas callers and consumers in the United States. So we announced a project last week where we're sending warnings to these VoIP providers that they're facilitating fraud. And we've sued a number of VoIP providers for doing just that. They're not telemarketing themselves, but they're facilitating fraudulent telemarketing from overseas. So we're trying to cut these calls off at the root, but you're absolutely right. The scourge continues and there's a lot more I know we're planning to be doing and, and our partners across the government are doing as well. By the way, listeners, we're talking with Samuel Levine, director of the Bureau's Consumer Protection at the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, one of the few regulators who deign to come on progressive podcasts. I can give you chapter and verse on that if you want. And thank you for coming on. Now, one of the functions of the Federal Trade Commission, going back to 1914, was an educational research mission. What kind of research reports are you putting out? And the one I'd like you to put out is to tell people about the fine print contract servitude, the consumer peonage that these fine print contracts now, which are like private legislatures of these big companies, and it's all so one-sided that it's hard to exaggerate, and they require increasingly people to give up their rights to have a trial by jury. They are cannibalizing tort law here. They even have a provision in some of these fine print Page after page, the Airbnb fine print contract is 65 pages, by the way. And deep in the fine print, they say, you have agreed in advance to unilateral changes in the contract. <laughs> I mean, there's no such thing as a contract where one party can unilaterally change the terms, like extend the number of frequent flyer miles from what it was when you took the flights. So what can you tell us about generally the educational mission and whether the Federal Trade Commission is going to pioneer in exposing the fine print contract. Sure. Well, as you know, and I think you're referencing this, courts in recent decades have been very inclined to enforce the terms of these fine print contracts, even if there's something consumers might not have understood they were getting into or that might have been buried in fine print. But we've made very clear through our enforcement actions over and over and over that just because a company includes a disclaimer or buries some term in a contract, that does not prevent us from alleging that a practice is unfair, doesn't prevent us from alleging that a practice is deceptive. And we're going to continue to have cases in the coming weeks, I expect, they're going to make the same point. In terms of your other question about you know, our ability to research and shape the marketplace through studies, we're, we've been very active in that area. 
Earlier this year, for example, we announced a market study where we're sending subpoenas to major social media platforms to ask them about what they're doing to stop the huge proliferation of fraudulent ads over social media. We're also doing a study right now on the franchise relationship and potential power asymmetries between franchisees and franchisors. We're looking at the cloud computing market. We have a whole host of initiatives right now that are not geared around law enforcement, that are geared around shining a light often on opaque industries to help shape public policy and eventually shape FTC law enforcement as well. Listeners should know that historically, the Federal Trade Commission has come out with wonderful pamphlets on one industry after another, helping with credit, for example, or buying a car. And I suppose they're all online now. Where would they access? Just give listeners the website. Sure. Go to consumer.ftc.gov, and we have a whole host of resources there in multiple languages. Not only that, but they're free. And if you download them, listeners, whenever you have a problem in a store with online purchase, just send them a copy. That'll get their attention. Send them a copy of the FTC advisory on this, that you're letting them know that you're not going to take this lying down, that you've got connections with your federal consumer protector called the Federal Trade Commission. It also helps the Federal Trade Commission do its job. So the rulemaking that used to get a lot of publicity was on the funeral industry because people at the point of bereavement are not very focused on how they can be deceived and gouged by funeral companies. Talk about the rulemaking. Is it as robust? Do you have some underway for the new technologies? Give us a sense. Yeah, so we actually are doing quite a bit of rulemaking, I think more than we've done in a long time. For the reason you said, our authorities have been curtailed by the Supreme Court. We can't go after every company. So we're trying to create, when appropriate, market-wide rules to protect the public and increase our ability to stop fraud. You mentioned the funeral rule. That's still very much in place. We just announced a resolution of an enforcement action last week, and we're currently seeking comment, or we currently are reviewing the rule to see whether we should, among other things, require online price disclosures in addition to price disclosures at the actual funeral home. You know, more generally, just to name one rule that we proposed just a couple of weeks ago that gives you an example of the kind of rule we're looking at, we announced what we call a click to cancel rule. And this is a rule about subscription plans. What the proposed rule says is that companies, vendors, should make it no more difficult to cancel a subscription than it is to sign up. It should be just as easy to cancel a subscription as it is to sign up. We've gotten a lot of complaints over the years about people who are trapped in subscriptions, can't cancel them. We're proposing a rule to end that. There's a larger problem. It's very hard to quit a business these days. Just try to quit Fidelity Investments and see all the delays and obstructions to, in effect, say, we really don't want you to quit, but I want to quit Fidelity. They don't answer their calls properly. I want to go, say, to the mutual institution called Vanguard. And I remember a few years ago, there was a credit card company based in Philadelphia that charged you a fee if you quit them, if you stop doing business with them. Are you ranging in that area? Yeah. In fact, we sued Vonage, which provides phone services for trapping people in subscriptions and charging them a really hefty early termination fee that they didn't tell people about on the front end. And we secured a record $100 million judgment against that company. I believe that was just in November. So we want to make it easy for consumers. It's very easy for consumers to sign up for these services. 
we want to make it just as easy for consumers to exit these services. Are you going after deceptive algorithms, the new technology of fraud? Yeah, it's such an important point, and we, we absolutely are. You know, we announced a case again earlier this year where a company said it had a proprietary algorithm to get people very rich very quickly. No surprise, they did not. We alleged that that claim was not substantiated. You know, similar to the example you gave with the Chevy Camaro, you know, we brought that same law into the 21st century and said if a company is going to make a claim about an algorithm, the company has to back it up. That company did not, and we sued them. So we absolutely are prepared to use our tools to address some of these contemporary challenges we're facing. Can you tell our listeners exactly how they can reach you at various websites if there's more than one? Sure. I mean, our main site, ftc.gov. We have consumer advice at consumer.ftc.gov. And if you think someone's breaking the law, or if you don't know if they're breaking the law, but if you got scammed, if you got cheated, if your privacy was violated, you can go to reportfraud.ftc.gov, file a complaint with us. Tell us what happened. It doesn't need to be written in legalese. We want to know what's happening to people so that we can take action to stop it. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Samuel Levine. Director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Federal Trade Commission. His jurisdiction is consumer fraud or crimes against the consumer. We now look forward to having Chairperson Khan on our program because her specialty is the other part of the Federal Trade Commission mission, which is breaking up monopolistic practices and collusive activities by corporations that cost consumers so much. Thank you very much, Sam. That's right. It's been an honor. Thanks, Ralph. We've been speaking to Samuel Levine, Director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Federal Trade Commission. We will link to his and their work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, a visit from the good doctor, public citizens, Dr. Michael Carome. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokiver. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, April 21, 2023. I'm Russell Mokiver. Since 2000, Large corporations operating in the United States have paid $96 billion in fines and settlements to resolve allegations of covert price fixing and related anti-competitive practices in violation of antitrust laws. Illegal pricing conspiracies have occurred in a wide range of industries affecting the cost of products ranging from everyday grocery items and auto parts to life-saving medications and electronic components. In industries such as financial services and pharmaceuticals, just about every corporation has been a defendant, often more than once. Those are the findings in a report released last week by the Corporate Research Project of Good Jobs First. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. What has Public Citizens Health Research Group been up to? David? Dr. Michael Carome is an expert on issues of drug and medical device safety, FDA oversight, and healthcare policy. He is the director of Public Citizens Health Research Group. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Dr. Michael Carome. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, Michael. In one of your statements that you released to the public, you say, quote, First, in June 2020, we published a detailed report examining the FDA's regulatory oversight of implanted spinal cord stimulators for pain. We use this class of devices to illustrate 
the Food and Drug Administration's dangerously lax oversight of high-risk implantable medical devices. The report concluded with a series of broad recommendations directed at the FDA and Congress for improving the oversight of medical devices, end quote. Most people read about drugs, pharmaceuticals, the FDA's role, the pay-or-die pricing of drugs by the drug companies. They don't read much about medical devices. And so to lay the predicate for this, Michael, why don't you just give a list of some of the medical devices so people get a sense that it's far more than a a fibrillator or a prosthetic device. I'm looking at this list now, and it's just staggering in terms of the diversity of medical devices produced under very, very inadequate regulation by the corporations. Absolutely. So there are hundreds of thousands of medical devices on the market in the U.S., and they range from you know, very low-risk devices, that, that like the tongue depressor that the doctor uses in a physician's office, and the stethoscope and the blood pressure cuff, those are low on the low risk end of medical devices. And then there are a variety of devices used for surgical procedures, you know, the sutures, x-ray machines, the scalpels. And then there are very high risk implantable devices like heart pacemakers, devices that help the heart pump, defibrillators, artificial joints, dental implants, the list goes on and on, but they are ubiquitous in our healthcare system. And many of them, unfortunately, have not been proven to be effective. And unfortunately, some of them are dangerous and sometimes kill patients because of the inadequate oversight by the FDA. Now, listeners should know this is a heavily government-subsidized industry. A lot of the research and development came from government funds or government institutions or contracts to universities. And the first regulation of medical devices occurred in 1976, and it's been a very frustrating experience for the people at the health research group, Dr. Sidney Wolf and others, along with Dr. Carome. Give us an idea of all the weaknesses of the regulatory structure over these medical devices. Absolutely. So... The first problem is that the law that you referenced that Congress passed in 1976 created a a very weak framework to begin with, particularly with respect to drugs, for which the regulatory oversight is much more rigorous and the standards for marketing a drug are much higher, whereas the standards for medical devices under the 1976 law are are very lax. Many devices, including many high-risk devices that are implanted in the human body, don't even need to undergo testing and clinical trials to show that they are safe and effective. The middle class of devices, which is the largest class, is called class two. All that a manufacturer needs to demonstrate is that their product that they want to market is substantially equivalent. That's the statutory term, substantially equivalent to an already legally marketed device. And Under that standard, you don't need to do any clinical testing, any clinical trials at all. However, even for the highest risk devices, for which there is some level of clinical testing in patients that needs to be done, the types of studies that can get through the FDA to purportedly show that the device is safe and effective are of much lower quality. Often they are case series, case reports without a control group. They're often much smaller than you see for drug trials, much shorter duration. And so even for the 
highest risk devices where you have to do some type of testing in patients, the types of trials done are exceptionally weak. So that's the framework that Congress created. And, and so Congress plays a tremendous role for the problems we have. But a second problem is that in 2002, Congress uh, and, uh, passed for the first time what's called the Medical Device User Fee Act. And those user fees have been reauthorized every five years since 2002. And so the companies now pay the FDA for the review and oversight of their products. And those user fees fundamentally changed the relationship between the FDA, the regulatory agency, and the medical device companies that are regulated by the agency. And that relationship, rather than being what should be in part an adversarial relationship, now is viewed as a partnership by both the agency and the medical device industry. And the agency in some of its documents even refers to these companies as partners, as customers. And so they're viewed as now customers and clients of the agency who they have to satisfy. You know, customer satisfaction is the key for the FDA and their customers in their eyes, rather than patients and, and the public are the companies. So that's the second big problem. And then the third problem is that you have this weak oversight framework with regulatory capture because of the user fees. And so FDA takes the easiest pathway to allow companies to market their products. And, and Congress has pushed them to do that under what's called the least burdensome pathway. That's a term in the law, least burdensome. And the FDA has really glommed onto that and looks for the easiest way to either clear or approve devices for marketing. And so the threshold for products that come on the market is very low. And then when problems occur, when patients are being harmed, when there, when there are lots of adverse events occurring, in some, in some cases death, the bar to get a device off the market is incredibly high. It's, it's almost impossible. So a very low bar to come on the market, a very high bar to get a product off the market after it's causing harm. And you put those, all those factors together that I've just described, and we have just a dangerous regulatory oversight system. Well, there have also been dangers that have materialized to unsuspecting patients, and there have been consumer class actions involved. People have probably read about breast implants. Give us an idea of the morbidity and fatality situation here from this lax regulation. Yeah, so let me give you a specific example, and we describe this in detail in our in our June 2020 report on spinal cord stimulators for pain, which we use as a sort of a case example of what's wrong with the FDA's oversight of medical devices. And in that report, part of it focused on the types of adverse events and the numbers of adverse events that have been reported over approximately a 20-year period from 2004 to 2019. And for spinal cord stimulators, which are widely used, and they've been used with increasing frequency to treat various back pain conditions, when we looked at the reports that have been reported or submitted to the FDA's adverse event reporting system, there were well over 155,000 cases of patients being injured by spinal cord stimulators for pain, close to 1,000 deaths. And each of these categories of events were occurring with increasing frequency over the last two decades. And so as they've been used more often, we see an increasing level of harm. And what's truly shocking is the fact that there's little evidence that these devices, these implantable stimulators, spinal cord stimulators, there's real little, little evidence that they actually are beneficial. 
that they do what they're supposed to do. But they're highly promoted. Um, they're used by orthopedic surgeons and patients are being harmed, but there's not real evidence that they're being benefited. There's some reports that there's counterfeit products coming in from overseas as some of these medical devices, which of course compounds the peril to uh, both doctors and patients that can't detect them. What do you know about that? I mean, there certainly are case examples of patients, uh, you know, having counterfeit devices, but that's not the real problem here. The real problem is the non-counterfeit devices that have been allowed to come to market by the FDA with inadequate evidence of safety and effectiveness causing harm to patients. It's by far, in a way, probably 99% of the problems we see with medical devices are the non-counterfeit devices. How effective, Michael, is the reporting system? Aren't these manufacturers like Medronic and others supposed to report adverse events, as the phrase goes, to the Food and Drug Administration? And are these reports public under the free information laws? So yes, companies are legally obligated to report serious uh, and unexpected adverse events, including device failures, to the FDA. And there's actually a publicly available website on the FDA's website where these reports can be found and searched for. The problem is it is not very user-friendly. Even for me, an expert in the field, sort of collating and analyzing these device reports and finding them is not easy. The FDA certainly could have created a much better system so that they are more easily found by members of the public. There's actually a company called Device Events that takes all the data from the FDA's website and has put it into a much more user-friendly platform it's a, unfortunately it's a subscription service, but we rely upon actually we subscribe to that because it is a much more effective way for us to do our work to analyze adverse event reports because the FDA's website is so inadequate. I want to read something from a public citizen statement here just to give our listeners the framework again. This is a quote: Medical devices include an array of aids and instruments used in the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of a disease or condition. And public citizens fought to ensure that medical devices are properly classified and therefore subjected to adequate regulation. We have also been involved with post-marketing studies, which are designed to ensure that devices are safe when used by a larger population in a variety of settings, such as device review process, device recalls, device reporting requirements, device promotion, and legislative work. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners are saying, you know, where is the watchdog here on Capitol Hill? Are there any committees that engage in periodic oversight of the FDA? Or is the medical device lobby so powerful that they even got to Senator Elizabeth Warren, who pushed for the lifting of the 4 or 5% sales tax on medical devices? Two questions here. What's the oversight like and what's the status of the sales tax? So on the oversight, I can't recall the last time there was a robust oversight committee hearing looking at the various problems there are with FDA's regulation of medical devices. It, it just, they don't, those types of hearings don't seem to happen anymore. And yes, that's clearly driven by the fact that Congress is so heavily lobbied on both sides of the aisle by the medical device companies. It's my understanding that the medical device tax, although there have been efforts to have it be rescinded, 
that tax is still in place, although I'm sure the industry will continue to engage in lobbying efforts to have it be rescinded. I think listeners might want a historical context here about congressional oversight. Ben Gordon was an assistant to some senators years ago. He was on the Hill for over 20 years. For the committee that he was the staff director of, he had 100 hearings on the Food and Drug Administration, 100 grilling hearings. Congress is like an inkblot now. The people have lost the reins over the very 535 men and women who control the sovereign power given them by the people in our republic and are handing it over to big business, including the medical device industry. Can you give us an idea, Michael, of any kind of consumer movement on this, say among the medical profession at medical schools or various more traditional consumer organizations besides public citizen? I think therein lies the problem because there are not a lot of other consumer groups sort of engaged in the types of advocacy efforts that we are engaged in to, you know, to try to reverse and improve the oversight of medical devices. There's a handful of groups that, that we sometimes collaborate with in our lobbying efforts of Congress and in our efforts targeting the FDA, but it's a small group. And I, I think part of the problem is people just don't realize how bad it is when it comes to FDA oversight of medical devices. Let me just take some from the list to show our listeners how complex and specialized they've become. There's a Aeromed bone screw laser therapy, Cyberonics Vegas nerve stimulator, electronics pacemaker, thoracic heart pump, wingspan stent system, and on and on. It's like hopelessly out of reach of ordinary people. Are there any champions in Congress that people can send information to? Usually there's one or two members of the House or Senate that have raised a ruckus about one industry or another. You know, I think on the Senate side, Senator Bernie Sanders, who's now the chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and that is on the Senate side, the committee responsible for oversight of the FDA, I think he understands the flaws in the FDA's oversight of both drugs and devices and understands that there's tremendous regulatory capture. So he, he's someone I think people could write to and encourage him to hold hearings oversight hearings of the FDA focused specifically on medical devices to try to shine a brighter light on these problems and develop solutions from a legislative standpoint. Before we turn it over to Steve and David, Michael, tell people how they can get more information from the Health Research Group, the websites, the wonderful newsletters you have, including the worst pills, best pills, the best consumer deal in the country, I think. Sure. So we, we have a website where we publish all of our work uh, as soon as we issue it. And to get that, you'd go to www.citizen.org slash HRG publications. And for our assessment of various drugs and whether we think they're safe and effective or not, go to worstpills.org, worstpills.org. Thank you very much, Michael. We're going to go to Steve Scrovan now. Thank you, Ralph. Dr. Carome, speaking of pharmaceuticals, public citizens gotten over, I believe, maybe wrong with this number now, but at least 25 dangerous drugs off the market. 
And a lot of the reasons they were dangerous is that they were rushed to the market without adequate testing. And, and as Ralph said, there were other substitutes that were had fewer side effects. Now we've had this mRNA COVID vaccine come to the market pretty quickly. And there's a lot of skepticism in the country about it. How would you assess the process and the oversight around the COVID-19 vaccine? So, you know, we the COVID-19 was a true public health crisis, one of the worst public health crises in many of our lifetimes. And there was a need to develop medical interventions quickly and, and vaccines being one of them. Those vaccines for COVID initially were brought to the public through what's called an emergency youth authorization, which is not full approval. But the FDA, in, in our view, had a a very rigorous process for you know for requiring the testing of those vaccines and in their review of those vaccines and, and we ourselves looked independently at the clinical trial data and when that data became available you know we quickly concluded independent of the FDA and any corporations that these vaccines were highly effective and very safe and so we've you know when the first couple of vaccines were authorized we encouraged our readers and members of public citizens, supporters of public citizens, to get those vaccines when they became eligible for them. And they, they sort of rolled those out at the various high-risk groups first and then to the general adult public. And, you know, since then, there have been hundreds of millions of doses received by, you know, at least, you know, across the world, hundreds of millions of people. And they really have prevented serious complications and prevented probably millions of deaths with some very limited and rare adverse effects. And so I myself have received four of those vaccines, two, the original two-dose series and two boosters, and I encourage others to get those vaccines if they haven't. Is there a third booster? I've received two boosters. So the first series was, the primary series was two doses. Then I got a first booster dose of the original vaccine. And then I've got the bivalent booster last fall. That's the most, re that's currently the only booster available now. So what you're saying is Public Citizen Health Research Group, which is probably the hardest on the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry of any public interest institution, is would say to vaccine skeptics, it's safe. That's right. So if you put this into the framework of our sort of worst pills, best pills, you know, pills being, you know, a, a, let's use that broadly, these vaccines would fall into our best pills, in quotes, category. Very good. David? Thank you. Uh, Dr. Karom, there, there's an artificial man-made scarcity of doctors in America. Is there an upside to artificial intelligence when it comes to the possibility of AI pharmacists or surgical robots. What is the upside? I, I, I can imagine the downside to all of this, but can you imagine doctors being replaced or enhanced by artificial intelligence within a year from now where you can go online and it's certified by the AMA and you can get a, a diagnosis from AI? And how far away are we from surgical robots? So I guess first I'd say you're straying into an area that's outside my area and our group's areas of expertise and not something we have looked at in detail. 
Right. It is a medical device. I mean, surgical robots yeah, are medical that's devices. Right. Absolutely. Robots are, but currently they're controlled. They're controlled by doctors. Right. They're not sort of autonomous. I think it's unlikely that in a year from now, we're going to see great changes in medicine from AI. I think in theory, yes, it holds out tremendous potential to improve healthcare. But I think as with all devices, particularly in this country where we have an inadequate oversight, regulatory oversight structure, I think there are great potential dangers if it gets rushed to market too quickly and not adequately assessed, and we miss the harms that may result. So so yes, I think there's potential for great benefit. And right now, given our framework for overseeing devices, potential for great harm. But don't you think in about a year or two, doctors are going to be typing into an AMA-sanctioned chat, AI chat, and get only give out diagnoses and prescriptions based on artificial intelligence recommendations? Isn't that, doesn't that have to be the future of medicine? It may be. I just don't know when we're going to reach that point safely. Anna? Many of our listeners may have been impacted by the shortage of Adderall and other ADHD medications and other stimulants that's been affecting the market since, I believe, September of last year. Has Public Citizen done any work on advocating for patients in navigating supply shortages, especially when there's cross-enforcement with the FDA and the DEA to access their necessary prescriptions? So our group does not do a whole lot with respect to drug shortages and sort of production of medications. In the case of ADHD drugs and, and the Adderall shortage, there are many, many other choices. This is a large family of drugs. They all work in basically the same way. They're all stimulants. And there are many other FDA-approved drugs for ADHD, including many generics, inexpensive versions of these drugs. Uh, and so even though there's a shortage, there, given the number of other options available from the same family of medications, which all have, again, the same, work the same way and generally have the same safety profiles, there are other options available for patients in these circumstances. The Health Research Group has been working on the issue of antibiotic resistance, that is the profligate prescription of antibiotics to such a point that there's resistance from the bacteria. And more and more, they're not able to find any antibiotic that can deal with certain infections, which has led to very perilous states for patients in hospitals. And year after year, the Congress is not doing anything about it. And the Department of Health and Human Services is not moving fast about it. And I recall, Michael, there is a medical journal article on this years ago that estimated 100,000 deaths a year just from the results of antibiotic resistance due to the overuse of antibiotics by doctors and hospitals and clinics. Any observations on that in terms of the health research groups, please? So absolutely. So the, the figure of you know 100,000 deaths from antibiotic resistance, that's a figure put out years ago, several years ago by the CDC and its reports on this topic. And so CDC, one of the leading public health agencies in the U.S., recognizes this as a national threat. 
Another way that this problem is being exacerbated is again, ties back to the FDA and that's it. It's, it's allowing the use of medically important antibiotics in animal feed. So the largest use of antibiotics in this country, and the more we use antibiotics, the more you cause bacteria to, to develop resistance, is the unnecessary use in animals. So to promote growth or to prevent disease when the animals aren't yet ill. And there have been a number of groups that have petitioned the FDA to to limit the, that use of antibiotics in animal feed. And unfortunately, the FDA has resisted taking the action necessary. And some of those residues find their way on the dinner table for people who eat beef, chicken, pork. Isn't that correct? That's correct, in small amounts. Well, we're out of time. We're talking with Dr. Michael Karam, the director of Public Citizens Health Research Group. And just give the website once more. Yes, the website for our drug safety work is worstpills.org. And that is a great gift that you can give to your friends, neighbors, relatives, co-workers. $12 gets access to that database on hundreds of brand name drugs that have been on the market for a long time. Some of them with side effects, some of them with less or no side effects all of them approved by the FDA for the particular ailment like high blood pressure. It's a great gift. Remember that website once again, Michael. Worstpills.org. That's all you need. Thank you very much, Dr. Michael Carone, for all your work. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. We've been speaking to Dr. Michael Carone, Director of Public Citizens Health Research Group. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Ralph, you just got a letter you wanted to read to us. What is that letter? This is a letter by Lloyd Conway of Lansing, Michigan, upon receiving the latest edition of the Capitol Hill Citizen, which is getting really tremendous response. But consider the depth of this letter, and it's quite brief. Many thanks from a reader who's been looking for some hope, honesty, and decency in our public discourse for far too long. The stories you publish are a valuable public service not often found today. I gave the previous edition to another teacher and hope to spread the word about your publication when, where, and whenever I can. Not using social media, I have to spread the word the old-fashioned way to people I actually know. Holding a newspaper in my hands again is also a treat. It's a public service, too. How much of today's digital content will be accessible in a hundred years. We have Cicero's letters, but will digital media survive as a record of our time? Wishing you all the best, Lloyd A. Conway, Lansing, Michigan. He's talking about the Capitol Hill Citizen. You can get your own edition by going to capitolhillcitizen.com. Ralph, this came in from a listener, and I think you'd be happy to hear it. It says, hi, Ralph, Steve, and David. Would Ralph still be interested in organizing a campaign to win Medicare for All, as he offered on the Bad Faith podcast in December 2022? Myself and numerous others who heard your offer are willing to dedicate a lot of time to bring on board more experienced organizers from electoral campaigns and community organizations. Best regards, Andrew Gruder. Well, uh, Andrew, you're on. Andrew is a young activist in Seattle. He's been working on indigenous people's rights, among other causes. So I would recommend that you contact Russell Mokhyber at singlepayeraction.org. That's singlepayeraction.org. You'll see from the website 
how long he has been advocating single payer or full Medicare for all, everybody in, nobody out, and connect with him. If you do what you say you're going to do, you'll be at the front line of what's going on in this country, which is not enough action for federal recognition of a Canadian-type system that gives free choice to doctor and hospital, is more efficient by far, less harmful to people, saves lives, and gives free choice of doctor and hospital. Better outcomes. They can do it up north. We can do it in the USA. You're close enough to Canada and British Columbia to realize that. So contact Russell Mocarver and get going. I want to thank our guests again, Samuel Levine and Dr. Michael Carome. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderadiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We read them all. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we talk sports. First with New York Times reporter Tyler Kepner, author of The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series, and Ken Reed, director of League of Fans. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Keep active. It's all up to you in the essential analysis of whether a democratic society can work. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, Ralph continues his conversation with Samuel Levine of the FTC, starting with a familiar topic regular listeners will recognize from previous programs. Well, one of the worst deceptive advertising practices come from the Medicare Advantage health insurance companies, which we call Medicare Disadvantage. And when it's time for enrollment in Medicare, I've never seen such saturation. They not only use Joe Namath on cable TV ads, but they cover the postal transmission of these deceptive ads. They make phone calls. I've had people tell me that the deceptive ads have gone to people who've been deceased for 20, 30 years. And people have asked me, what is the Federal Trade Commission doing about this? I say it's deceptive because they don't clarify that under Medicare Advantage or Medicare Disadvantage, you're in a narrow network. You lose your free choice of doctor and hospital. That's one. Second, you've got to go through a prior authorization bureaucratic process to give the okay to your doctor to give a recommended treatment. And there are other differences from traditional Medicare In addition to the traditional Medicare beneficiaries subsidizing the elderly who are seduced into Medicare disadvantage, and the companies have been caught in exposés in the New York Times in in cheating the federal government and overbilling the federal government. Please tell us, what are you doing about Medicare disadvantage? So as we discussed, companies that actually operate as insurers 
would be outside the FTC's jurisdiction. A lot of them are handled at the state level or for Medicare Advantage, I believe by HHS or CMS. However, we've been pretty active, quite active in recent years on essentially sham insurance plans. They're not actually insurance, they're membership programs where people get discounts. Just last year, we brought a case against a company called Benefit Technologies that was calling thousands of seniors and telling them they could sign up for cheap Obamacare. We got a $100 million judgment against that company. And importantly, and this is a point I hope we can touch on briefly, Ralph, we got bans for the top two executives of this company. We banned them from the healthcare industry. One of our real focuses mm -hmm. right now is not only corporate accountability, but individual accountability for the executives who are making the decisions that cheat people. That's very important. Who has jurisdiction over Medicare Advantage deceptive practices? Department of Health and Human Services, if the FTC has been banned from going after the insurance companies? I believe Medicare Advantage would be HHS, or and CMS might play a role as well, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Listeners, we're talking about companies like Aetna, United Healthcare, which has reported record profits, Cigna, and others, undermining Medicare by basically contracting with elderly people, in my opinion, on deceptive grounds to go under their type of plan. So it's really a corporate health plan hollowing out Medicare. Almost half of the elderly beneficiaries are now on Medicare disadvantaged plans. And, you know, it's becoming more difficult for them to move back to traditional Medicare if they so choose. So the vice is tightening here on these people when they really need it, such as serious illnesses, they get the usual health insurance denial of benefit or harassment treatment. And the lure for elderly is, you know, they say vision and hearing and gym privileges. But when you need it the most is when you get a higher level of denial of benefits under Medicare Advantage than if you stayed in traditional Medicare. Now, the subject of eliminating cash and check as payments is coming more and more to the forefront. There are about half a dozen states that require vendors to take cash or checks, not very well enforced. The District of Columbia, for example, has clear violators on its commercial streets refusing to take cash. And the District of Columbia government says, we don't have the money to enforce that law, which is sort of strange. It doesn't take that much enforcement. But the arguments for preserving cash, of course, are privacy, natural disasters, people who are unbanked, and generally a resistance to being drawn into the credit payments gulag. Because once you get into the credit debit payment systems, they got control of your money. And the big issue hasn't been paid enough attention to when people say, well, haven't things gotten better for the consumers over 50 years? Well, 50 years ago, they had more control of their money. Now a bank can charge $35 for a bounce check, which costs them less than a dollar, including fraud, covering fraud expenses, and they just take it out of your bank account, or other companies just take it out of your credit account. Is the FTC doing anything about that? So I don't think we're doing anything on some of the state rules around prohibiting companies from not allowing cash. But I certainly agree with your general concern. Of course, I should have said at the beginning, I'm speaking only for myself. I'm not speaking for the Federal Trade Commission. But, you know, my personal view is there are all sorts of reasons consumers don't want 
that they want to use cash. Privacy is a big priority for us. I understand consumers wanting to keep transactions private. I understand consumers not wanting to deal with credit cards and get tried. I know a lot of people who grew up a lower income, even though they have money now, they don't want to use credit cards because they've seen how their relatives have been trapped. So I certainly understand these states that are protecting the ability of consumers to pay with cash. And I think that's an important effort. Do you get adequate press? I'm sure you're going to say no, but could you elaborate in some detail? The Federal Trade Commission releases and civic actions and research reports. What's the status there? Well, we always want more because we want people to learn about our actions. That's a way of maximizing our impact. We can't take on every case. So when we bring a case, we want a lot of people to hear about it so they know how to protect themselves and a lot of companies to hear about it so they know the consequences they face if they break the law. I think we have had a lot of success. You know, when we announced this click to cancel rule to make it easier for people to cancel subscriptions, it was all over the news. Our chair was on the Today Show, NPR, et cetera. But we want people paying attention to consumer issues. We want companies paying attention. So that we would always like more. So I'm uh, another reason I'm very pleased to be on your program. Sam, how, how do you relate to the following constituency in terms of your mission? One is the Consumer Reports, which is a nonprofit, has a sterling reputation for accuracy. Do you help tell people about Consumer Reports on any of your websites? How do you relate to that? Well, I'm I'm a longtime subscriber to Consumer Reports. I'm a big fan. You know, they actually have helped us build cases. We brought a case recently where some of the early investigative work was by folks at Consumer Reports. As you know, Ralph, they have really smart investigators, technologists, engineers working for them. And they're a critical source, not only for consumers, but for us. If somebody writes you and says, what do you think of Consumer Reports? Should I subscribe? How far do you go? Well, I don't want, even speaking for myself, I don't want to endorse any services, but I am a subscriber to Consumer Reports and I don't make big ticket purchases without consulting Consumer Reports. The second constituency are law schools. Law schools are not noted for consumer protection courses. Of course, they have commercial law courses and they don't have many corporate crime courses. There is a consumer law clinic at the University of Wisconsin, which you may or may not know about. That might be a good recruiting ground for young lawyers joining the commission. What kind of outreach? Do you speak at law schools? Do you recommend that they broaden the curriculum or what? So when I was in law school during the financial crisis, there were very few students interested in consumer protection. And I really became interested in it, not because of any law school class, because of what I was seeing on the ground in the foreclosure crisis. And I had wonderful mentors at the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau and elsewhere to guide me on that path. I was back at Harvard Law School two weeks ago, and I was delighted to see how many students were interested in this. I had dinner with the head of Harvard's Consumer Protection Clinic. I also spoke to students at the Legal Aid Bureau, and there's a lot of interest in consumer protection work in a way that people have told me they haven't seen in a long time. So that's very encouraging. You know, this is, as you know, and as you've articulated so well over so many years, this really, I consider it economic justice work, and I welcome students who are interested in consumer protection. I'm always happy to talk to them, always happy to talk to their classes. This is something I would really encourage people to consider pursuing. A couple pickups retroactively. I didn't really give enough attention to your work on franchise agreements. 
People go every day into millions of retail stores like McDonald's and other service chains. And these are small businesses. A lot of them are not owned by the major company. They're owned by families. But they are indentured by these very one-sided franchise agreements. And class actions haven't been that successful. So can you elaborate a little bit about the weakening over the years by the courts of consumer class actions, not just in the franchise area, but generally? And what's your view of the present situation with plaintiff lawyers bringing consumer class actions and the difficulties procedurally and substantively in the courts that make it very difficult? So you're absolutely right that there have been setbacks for class actions generally, and not all class action, to, you know, to state the obvious, not all class action lawyers are created equally. There are certainly concerns with, how some, with the work of some class action lawyers. But one of the things I believe really strongly, and I think, again, you really paved the way for this over your career, I really believe in the notion of consumers banding together. You know, our key strategy when I was doing foreclosure defense work in Boston was people power. You know, people, it sounds corny, but it's a real thing. I think people working together to try to protect themselves and protect their communities and advocate for themselves in legislatures and courts. And that's something, you know, I'm a little more cynical than I was then, but it's something I continue to believe in. You have huge challenges in this country. And I think the best way to prevent change is to keep people divided. I think when people come together, it's a lot more effective and there's a lot more of a possibility of progress. Does that mean you favor private law enforcement rights of Federal Trade Commission mandates, parallel action? Well, you know, one of the things I, you know, you mentioned franchise. One of the things I, I said publicly in a blog post we put out, one of the things I reminded the public, is there's no private right of action under the FTC Act. But most states, as you know, have many FTC acts. Many of them have private rights of action, and people should be aware of that. And oftentimes, these state statutes say you should look to the interpretations of the FTC. So even though there's no private right of action under the FTC Act, it's important that consumers and their counsel don't forget about state court and state law. Are you aware of the four-year project that was completed last year by the Consumer Watchdog Group in Santa Monica, California, Harvey Rosenfield, and Laura Antonini, they developed a model state consumer protection act to bring consumer laws up to date. They're very antiquated, not just in how small the fines are, but they don't keep up with new scams, new crimes, new technologies. Are you aware of that effort? I am not. And I would actually love if someone could send me some information on that. There's I have just the right person. Laura Antonini is a New hire in the Federal Trade Commission. She's a lawyer at the Federal Trade Commission. I will follow up with Laura then. We still have there states you are. that don't have unfairness authority. And I believe New York still does not have unfairness authority in its state UDAP law. So there's a lot of work to be done at the state level. The decimation of local media has drawn a lot of the attention to Washington. But there's a lot that can be and should be happening in the states. Sam, are you familiar with the Cubs, the Citizen Utility Board, effort where it started in Wisconsin, went to San Diego and Illinois. It was state laws that required the utility companies to put an insert in their billing envelope occasionally at no cost to themselves, inviting people to join their own nonprofit consumer action group called Cubs. So they have a seat at the table with their lawyers and their researchers. And in one case, 
about 1983 in Illinois, Illinois Cub, without even going to court, nailed Commonwealth Edison for overcharging on excess capacity, their nuclear plants, and they returned $1.3 billion back to Northern Illinois families. There was a Supreme Court decision that said that having this insert violated the First Amendment rights of Pacific Gas and Electric to remain silent and not respond. This is the most egregious expansion of corporate personhood in the history of the Supreme Court. Are you aware of that effort? And if you are, isn't that something that the FTC research function can look into and encourage all over the country? Yeah, I am aware of that effort. I I grew up in Wisconsin. I I began my career in Chicago. And actually, I remember hosting a consumer protection event with Pat Quinn, who, as you know, was very involved in the utility board. I think he was one of the founders in Illinois. And this came up in discussion. I am familiar. And I think it's another example. I think your idea is intriguing. It's another example of how, you know, notwithstanding, sometimes there's hostility in the courts, but it's another example of how when citizens come together, when consumers come together, they have a fighting chance to protect their rights. You know, notwithstanding that loss, I think the citizen utility boards have had a lot of success, and that could be indeed a model for other areas. That's a very good thing to have a convening conference, because the FTC has been known once in a while to have conferences where yes. you pull together your expertise with local institutions, state, local, consumer groups, so forth. The federal government has all kinds of conferences with corporations and subsidizing corporations. There needs to be some reciprocity. Last question. Have you heard of the Corporate Crime Reporter? I have heard of the Corporate Crime Reporter. It's the only weekly in its field. And if you read it over time, you are fairly persuaded that we are witnessing a corporate crime wave in this country. But it doesn't translate into the political arena or into the congressional hearing arena. So I'm very happy to give you a heads up that Senator Richard Blumenthal, who has a subcommittee under the Homeland Security Committee, is going to launch a series of investigations into corporate crimes, which also are civil violations often. And he's going to start with Medicare Advantage. Well, Senator Blumenthal has been an absolute champion for consumers for many years, not only in the Senate, but as attorney general, and I think for many years before that. So I have no doubt that he's going to be successful in those efforts, and I wish him well. And now David follows up the FTC conversation with a question for Ralph. Ralph, I have a question for you. So there's obviously a problem over at the FTC with people going to work there as lawyers, and then they graduate from the Federal Trade Commission and go off and compete against the FTC. They, They give all their information. Yeah. So one of the people who wrote your report on the Federal Trade Commission back in 69 was Richard Nixon's son-in-law, I believe, right? Mr. Cox? Yes. How did you prevent Nader's Raiders? I don't want to say anything bad about Edward Cox, but were you worried that people were joining, becoming Nader's Raiders to learn your tricks so they could fight you? And how do you prevent that? That, almost, that occurred to me, obviously, but it almost never happened. They either went into other citizen groups, started other citizen groups, or went into teaching law. A couple of them went into local business, a family business. Later on, there were, back in the 90s and later on, some who went into corporate law firms and represented corporations. But, you know, this is outside of government. You know, the 
it doesn't have the ethical imperative as it would have by Justice Department lawyers and FTC lawyers learning the inside ropes and then putting themselves up for bid with large corporate law firms who can double their salary. And then they fertilize these law firms with ways how they can delay and obstruct their former agency's activities. That happens a lot. And there's nothing we can do to stop that. No, there, there isn't even a, an interregnum. For example, a prosecutor who went into the sweetheart deal with the Boeing on the Indonesian and Ethiopian crashes, she waited about five months. She was in Texas, and she joined the corporate law firm as a partner representing Boeing. Wow. And nothing was done about it. So if she took a job for Wendy's flipping burgers, she'd have to wait a year before she could go across the street and flip burgers for McDonald's. Yeah, there are private contracts called non-compete contracts, as our listeners know, that basically say, yeah, you work for us, McDonald's or Burger King. If you quit, you can't go across the street and work for a competitor. But the federal government is not up to that yet. There are some ethic rules in the White House that have an interregnum, but the agencies have got a lot of work to catch up in that area to slow down the revolving door, as it's called. It's maddening. Isn't consumption, you, you started off as a consumer advocate. That was your first title. In the end, isn't consuming things, isn't it a vice? Isn't that maybe the problem with the Federal Trade Commission and consumer protection with the planet falling apart that we have to teach the American people that consumption is, is a vice? Well, I think the climate people are doing that every day all over the world. Reduced packaging, reduced unnecessary consumption, solid waste disposal, turning into recycling, pre-cycling. Yeah. Right to repair. A lot of books written on that. Yeah. Yeah. Now Ralph has a couple more questions for Dr. Carome. Before we go to Hannah, it just occurred to me, are there any other countries that rigorously or more rigorously regulate medical devices and produce information that we can use in our country where the regulation is so weak? Probably not. <laughs> I think in Europe, you know, which comes perhaps close to being comparable to the U.S. in some respects with regard to oversight of medical products, I think their system is even weaker than ours. And I, I don't think there's any, you know, our system is bad, but I don't, I'm not aware of a system in another country that's better at this point. Michael, I have to ask you before we conclude, why are so many pharmaceuticals and their active ingredients made in China, India, and other countries, not made in the U.S., not produced directly. And is it correct to say that there is no domestic manufacturer of antibiotics left in the United States and we're reliant on China and other countries for antibiotics? So certainly, I don't know if every antibiotic comes from outside the U.S., but that, that may be true. We don't follow those exact statistics, but certainly... The active ingredients for most medications are made outside the U.S., including China, India, some other countries, and most finished products. So where they take the active ingredients and inactive ingredients and they're combined into pills, tablets, capsules, many of them come from outside the U.S. I think the, the main driving factor is that it, these pharmaceutical companies are looking for the cheapest manufacturers uh, where they can take advantage of lower, often unfair labor costs. And so that's like many areas of the economy, 
manufacturing has been driven outside the U.S. in many ways. And is the same true for medical device manufacturing? Has that been offshore to East Asia and other low labor cost countries? Certainly there is either lots of components made outside the U.S., but I think it may be less extensive than for drugs. I mean, there's certainly a lot of manufacturers of devices in the U.S. Where the, the Why isn't it a national security issue to have a country of our size not producing any antibiotics? It certainly, it certainly is a problem. And, and we saw with COVID where there was early on where China was one of the early countries affected by that and affected by shutdowns in various sectors of their economy. It led to shortages of drugs directly. And so, yes, the potential for, you know, for whatever reason, in that case, it was a pandemic. But from your earlier discussion, were we to go be in a war with China? You have to think that the supply we get for so many vital products, including medications, could be cut off. Yeah, that seems like a security risk, national security risk. And listeners, when you write, email, telephone, or meet your members of Congress, there are only 535 of them, as you know. You can ask questions in the context of our interviews today that nobody can rebut. Ask your senator representative, no matter whether they're right-wing, liberal, whatever, why are you allowing our country, day after day, to import all antibiotics and have no manufacturing of any antibiotics in the USA? You'll get no rebuttal. Then you say, why aren't you doing something about it? I want a letter from you about what you're going to do about it right away. And in case you missed it the first time around, Ralph has Dr. Michael Carome repeat how to get Public Citizen's Worst Pills, Best Pills newsletter. Now, give those websites again, because people often don't catch them on the first round. Give them slowly, Michael, and tell them how inexpensive it is to have 24-7 access to a database on all kinds of prescription drugs. Sure. So again, for all of our work, whether it's petitions or letters to Congress or other agencies, that would be citizen.org slash HRG publications. For our information on drugs and drug safety, where we have, uh, we've reviewed several hundred drugs, including the most commonly used drugs, go to worst Pills, W O R S T P I L L S, worstpills.org. And that is, there is a small annual subscription fee for that, and it's $12 for your first year and $15 after that. Imagine $12 and $15. Your family is taking prescription drugs. You see some side effects, they're approved by the FDA, but there are other drugs for the same ailment that don't have those side effects, and you wonder, how can you get information? Why does this prescription drug make people dizzy? Why does it produce gastrointestinal bleeding? Maybe there's another FDA-improved drug that doesn't have those side effects. For $12, you can have access to super accurate, up-to-date information that you can use and advise your doctor. If your doctor is not up to that level of knowledge in prescribing pharmaceuticals for you. And after the year, it's $15. That's one $5. And that's why I call it the best deal. 
This database has saved lives. It's been around for over 45 years. It's met the test. The drug companies have great difficulty challenging its accuracy because it's accurate. And even though the drug companies produce pharmaceuticals that are criticized and put under the rubric worse pills rather than best pills, they can't dislodge the truth and the science behind this database. So use it. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. In Arlington, Amazon has halted construction of their much-vaunted second headquarters, or HQ2, according to the Washington Post. Some may remember the race to the bottom in terms of corporate tax cuts and subsidies that ensued across much of the country in 2017 and 18 when Amazon suggested cities and states could compete for this development. Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez famously opposed these giveaways to Amazon and was pilloried for that in the mainstream press. Turns out, she was right on the money. Despite the fact that Amazon is postponing the construction of this facility, they are still poised to reap over $150 million in taxpayer subsidies from the state of Virginia. Harvard University has accepted a $300 million donation from hedge fund manager and right-wing billionaire Ken Griffin, according to the New York Daily News. In exchange, Harvard will rename their Graduate School of Arts and Sciences to the Kenneth C. Griffin Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. In Palestine, trade unions have issued an open letter calling for global solidarity. This letter urged global publics to eliminate procurement from companies complicit in Israeli apartheid and the occupation, divest pension funds from State of Israel bonds, and specifically called on, quote, port workers and their unions to refrain from loading or offloading Israeli ships, as was done in Oakland, California, noting that many port workers and unions did the same when combating apartheid in South Africa. The American Prospect reports that in Florida, nursing home interests are dumping money into the campaign coffers of Republican state leadership to grease the wheels for a bill which would immunize themselves from lawsuits related to wrongful death in their facilities. As David Diane tweeted, Ron DeSantis' war on woke masks his actual war on lawsuits. NorthJersey.com reports that a new law in New Jersey has gone into effect guaranteeing workers a week of severance for every year of service when large employers issue mass layoffs. This law was enacted following the Toys R Us bankruptcy, wherein long-term workers were only granted severance after a massive public pressure campaign. Dashcam videos obtained by Wired show how self-driving cars, currently being recklessly tested in San Francisco, are clogging streets delaying public transportation and creating dangerous conditions on the roads. Quote, Autonomous cars in San Francisco made 92 unplanned stops between May and December 2022, 88% of them on streets with transit service. According to city transportation authorities who collected the data from social media reports, 911 calls and other sources because companies aren't required to report all the breakdowns. In a novel approach, Code Pink is using digital tools to crowdfund an ad in a major newspaper. This ad urges President Biden to play peacemaker and, quote, end the war in Ukraine. Supporters can view and donate to the ad at codepink.org. A recent article in the climate-focused magazine Grist covers the choices facing the Biden administration regarding the Colorado River. The administration has put forward two bleak plans, quote, one would dry up Arizona to preserve California's strong water rights. The other would spread cuts among the states and risk litigation from California. 
Ben Jacobs reports that in a speech to the NRA convention, former President Trump appeared to endorse ending home rule in Washington, D.C. In typical Trump prose, he said, quote, I think we have to take it over, take over management of our capital. This is a continuation of the assault on D.C. sovereignty, which recently came to a head when President Biden chose to join with Republicans to block D.C.'s revised criminal code. Unite Here, the hospitality workers union grew 18% in 2022 per Bloomberg law. This stunning growth is second only to the Teamsters, which we covered on this segment last week. As the reinvigorated labor movement continues to expand, we might expect to see this kind of growth among other major unions, such as United Auto Workers. Checking in on out of control police practices, two stories stand out. In New York, Ars Technica reports that the city has begun rolling out, quote, hulking 400-pound police robots after being forced to withdraw the project over civil liberties concerns in 2021. Mayor Eric Adams recently slashed budgets for city services like libraries, yet each of these robots will cost around $75,000. In Memphis, the MPD is facing backlash after unveiling a new unit, which will, quote, arrest unaccompanied minors that sell food, play loud music, are inappropriately dressed, or dancing in the street in downtown Memphis, per commercial appeal. Cardell Oren, the executive director of the nonprofit advocacy group Stand for Children, compared this to the, quote, pre-crime unit from the movie Minority Report, and added that, quote, targeting minors for a subjective concept like inappropriate clothing is a coded criminalization of black culture and black youth. A bombshell new report from the Corporate Research Project at Good Jobs First reveals that since the year 2000, large companies in the United States have paid $96 billion in fines and settlements to resolve allegations of covert price fixing and related anti-competitive practices in violation of antitrust laws. The companies that have been forced to pay the most include Visa Inc. at a whopping $6.2 billion along with Deutsche Bank, Barclays, MasterCard, and Citigroup, though the report makes clear that price fixing occurs in many sectors, ranging from automotive parts to power generation to healthcare services. Philip Matera, who authored the report, is quoted saying, large corporations, which are supposed to be competing with one another, are often secretly conspiring to set prices. In doing so, they cause economic harm to consumers and contribute to inflation. And that's In Case You Haven't Heard, And that's a wrap. Join us again next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way.